Well, I want to preach this morning on the topic of God's will, uh, the mystery of God's will. Uh, I don't uh, know if you wrestle a lot with God's will. Do you still ask that question? What is God's will for my life? Uh, that, uh, when I talk to y- young people, right, youth groups and teenagers, that is far and away one of the number one things Christian young people want to know. They want to know, what is God's will for my life? I'm a teenager and we live in a day and an age where they have so many choices before them, right? And they don't want to make the wrong choice. Some of them have a misguided notion that God's will is some sort of tightrope and they've got to figure out exactly and they were supposed to go here instead of there and maybe they were supposed to go to this college and not that college and they were supposed to major in this major and not that and then oh what about marriage (laughs) well who am I supposed to marry where am I supposed to live what am I supposed to do I met a, one young man, uh, profited from all this I was at a camp down in Texas and I met a young man named Will he realized, I think, the angst around all this, and so he tried to meet girls at this camp, and his opening line was, ladies, I'm God's will for your life. <laughs> you know, and I thought, oh, well, I don't think that's going to work, buddy. <laughs> Maybe there's some young teenager watching this named Will who goes, hey, that's a great idea. It's not. We laugh at that, but we wonder, what is God's will, and how do you discern God's will? Well, what if right here in Scripture, right here in Ephesians 1, it was, it was actually buried in a verse we, we didn't have time to go into last week. You know, we covered all 202-word sentence of Ephesians 1 last week. What if right here in the Bible it talks about the mystery of God's will, not just for your life? Get that out of your head. Don't, don't think that, that God is a jokester in heaven, some sort of trickster, as if he's got a tightrope for you, and he makes his will some sort of riddle, as if the hardest part of life is somehow figuring out what the will of God is. No, the will of God, much more like a canyon with love God on this side and love people on this side. A wall of love God and a wall of love people. And now he leads you, trust me, don't ever think that finding out or discovering the will of God is the hard part. Doing it is always the hard part. Being obedient, waking up in the morning. Hey, I can solve the God's will thing for any young person here right now, by the way. You're going to wake up every morning. You're going to have some choices to do right, some choices to do wrong. Guess what God's will is? (laughs) Do right. You say, well, that's hard to figure out. No, it's hard to do. But here's what happens. If you do that over and over and over again, and you worry about the 99% of God's will that's clearly revealed in his book, the other 1%, like who you're supposed to marry and where you're supposed to live, it'll fall right into place. Doing it is the hard part. Here in Ephesians 1, God's will is revealed in such a way that it talks about not just what's God's will for your life, but what is God's will, period. What is the mystery of his will? What, what is God's will for the universe, for the whole world? There couldn't be a more epic title to this. God's will for everything. Let's, 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 let's get a run Running start here and look at the, some verses we looked at last week, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We looked at five of those last week, remember? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, in him, here we go, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his, of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, and here it is, verse 9, making known to us, 
the mystery of his will. According to this, we, we know the will of God. Now, you may read that and go, wait a minute. No, I, I don't think I do. No, Ephesians 1.9 says he's made known to us the mystery of his will. Was, is this something he just made up on the spot? No, no, no. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Here it is. God's will. His will for the universe. It's according to his purpose. He set it forth in Christ as a plan. Verse 10, for the fullness of time. Here it is. What is God's will for everything? It's this phrase. To unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the will of God. His plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. If you get lost anywhere in today's message, if at any point in this sermon you go, man, that, he, he covered a lot of different scriptures or whatever, just know that, that that's the North Star. That's what this whole thing's about. The will of God is to take all these broken things and unite all things in him. Who's in him? In Christ. What does it mean to unite all things in Christ? Things in heaven and things on earth. To unite it all together. To bring it together. This word means um, um, he's going to sum all things up in Christ. Have you ever heard um, anybody say, and now I'm going to sum up. Let me ask you this way. Have you ever heard a preacher say, and now I'm going to sum up. Don't believe it. But believe that. He's going to sum up all things or gather up all things. Or you might say all things are going to find their head in Christ. This means that for Christians, think about this. The, the history is going somewhere. For the Bible, the Bible says history is going somewhere. It's not, just, it's not just meaningless. And it's not some endless circle of life. Sorry, Simba. It's not. It's linear. History had a beginning, history has a middle, and an eternity, a new heaven, new earth is going to look like what? All things united, subsumed, summed up under Christ. He'll take the whole kingdom, button it up, you might say, and offer it back to God the Father. The Bible says the whole point is about a loving and just God who wants to dwell with the redeemed people who freely unite themselves to him on a good earth forever and ever. An earth that's been redeemed, no longer polluted by the fall. Nothing missing, nothing broken. Oh, isn't that good? Oh, whole, right? United means whole. It means no longer, no longer broken. Um, one of the joys of having uh, 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 children get into their teenage years is you suddenly realize at what point, you know, you know that show, uh, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? That's not funny anymore. Because they bring home homework, and you start to realize at which point. And you don't tap out equally. You're not like, well, I, I can't do it. But in different subjects, you tap out sooner. So for the record, in science, fifth grade, that's it. That's all I got. I can no longer help you, right? Photosynth what? I don't know, right? Um, but in math, I've like really tried to hang, hang in there. Um, but one thing I love about math is when the kids just had integers. You know why integers are so great? There's not all those messy fractions and decimals. They're just integers. The word integer means whole, whole numbers. I love it when it divides out and it's an integer. Nobody has to talk about fractions. Nobody has to talk about things being all divided up. Integers. Did you know that word, sense of wholeness, is the same word? We, we, we get the word integrity. You know why? Because when you're a person of integrity, you're not all fractioned out. 
It's not like, well, here's the part of me in front of church people, and here's the part of me in front of the world, and here's the part of me at work, and here's the part of me at school, and here's the part of me on social media. <laughs> Little fractions. No, no, no. I'm an integer. I'm, I'm, I'm a whole, right? What God wants to do cosmically is get rid of all these remainders and all these fractions and bring us back to a wholeness. Now, how do we know this is going to happen? Well, because God has already demonstrated his power over death and evil. We humans, can, those are two things we cannot defeat on our own, by the way. Would you agree? Death and evil. You can try to postpone death. And you can, you can just try to live as moral a life as you can. But how many of you know we cannot defeat death because we are mortal and we cannot defeat evil because we are fallen? But God, on that Easter Sunday morning, did he not demonstrate the decisive victory has been won in Jesus Christ. Skip down now to Ephesians 1. Skip down to verse 19. Ver, ver, really, verses 11 through 19, what, he, what he's doing is he's, he's praying. He's praying, I pray the eyes of your heart will be open. I'll pray that you could know. I'll pray that you could know. And one of the things he prays, verse 19, I pray you know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, that's victory over death, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That's victory over evil. And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. You see that? Everything summed up in Christ. Christ is now the, the head. All things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's where human history is heading. I told you, that's God's will. If you get lost, to unite all things in him. Things in heaven, things on earth. Does, does this kind of remind you of somewhere else Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2? There's coming a day so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, all to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue. The point, to unite all things in him. Things in heaven, things on earth. That's God's will, to unite all things in him. Now, I want to walk us through. You might think of lots of ways that we're not integers. You might think of lots of ways we're broken. But I'm going to walk you through three. What does it mean when... The Bible says he wants to unite. He wants to take these broken things and fix them. I'll show you three fractures. If you're a note taker, three ruptured, broken places. We're going to look first at how they got that way in the Bible. And then we'll look at how they can be reconciled or restored. Or I was thinking about break. I thought maybe I should make the controlling metaphor how, they, how that bone could be reset. You know, you got like a broken bone and reset. And so I was really clever but I was an English major, not a science major. I think that's already been demonstrated. And so I, uh, I thought I'd be clever because in English, a compound sentence means a sentence that has multiple parts. So I thought a compound fracture meant a bone that had been breaking in multiple places. And I was going to call this the compound fractures. I then Googled compound fractures, and I cannot unsee what I've now seen. <laughs> that's not what it means at all. Uh, don't, don't uh, unless you're a physician, don't, don't, don't Google that. <laughs> Whew. The point is, not a clean break, hopelessly fractured and needs to be reset. So here we go, three breaks. The first one's obvious, the second one maybe less so, and the third one we forget about sometimes, but here's the first. The first fracture, isn't it obvious, between God and humans. 
When the Bible says he wants to unite all things, at the most basic level, he wants to unite the fracture that has occurred between God and humans. The discord, the the enmity between humans and God. Why is that first? Because it's most important. How did he deal with it? Well, he forgave our sins. Look back at Ephesians 1.7. Remember, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption means he bought us back. Forgiveness means there was a debt owed. But the Bible goes even further. In another place in the New Testament, it says we were his enemies. Ponder that. You were an enemy of God. In sin, that's what, if you think about it, that's what it is. It's cosmic treason. That's why David in Psalm 51 says, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Because every sin ultimately is a way of saying, God, I don't want you to be God. I don't want you to run the show. I want to run the show. Well, when you have someone who's in charge and we rebel against that person, that's treason. Colossians 1.21 says it. This includes you who were once far away from God. He's talking about believers who have been saved now. He says, look what you were. This is Colossians 1.21. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Colossians 1.21. Now, do you know that fateful moment in human history when this first act of cosmic treason happened? You know it, don't you? God makes a good earth for Adam and Eve to dwell in. They have everything they want. They're given uh, the ground to work and to, and to make uh, um, culture out of what he's... He, God didn't put them in a wasteland. He put them in a garden to take the goodness of the raw material of the earth and make something wonderful and beautiful. And Satan seizes his opportunity. Do you remember? God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden. Can you imagine? To which these humans are going, this is, this is glorious. This is wonderful. You can eat from any tree in the garden. God, you know we love to eat, and you know we like a variety. This is glorious. And he says, just, just, just that one tree that's in the middle of the garden, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat that tree. On the day you eat of that tree, you'll die. Well, you know how humans are. If you want to get a human interested in something, tell them it's the one thing they must never do. And suddenly Adam and Eve, who might not have even noticed that tree, were suddenly like, what's so special about this one? What is it about being told you can't do something? Sometimes, you know, Romans, Paul kind of hints at this. Sometimes the law is given and, and it's like the power of sin gloms onto that and, and leads us to do things we probably wouldn't have otherwise done. Haddon Robinson tells a great story about um, a, a, a hotel that had no problem with this until they put signs up that said you couldn't do it. The hotel was in Corpus Christi, Texas. It was built way out over a pier and they had a sign in every hotel room that said you are not allowed to deep sea fish right out of your hotel room window. Well, guess what they suddenly had a problem with? That they had never had a problem before. Because until a human sees that sign, you're like me. You look at that and go, well, I would have never thought to do that until I've been told I can't, right? So Satan seizes his opportunity, takes the form of a serpent. Verse, Go all the way back to, you can turn there in your Bible. You'll know the story. I'll have it up here on the screen. You know this. Genesis 3.1. This is the story of the fall of man. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There's so much here we could talk about. Just look at the way Satan frames the character of God. He says, I can't believe, you know what I heard? You know, the Garden of Eden's a small town. People talk. Apparently the animals talk. 
You know what we heard? We heard God, who we always thought was so kind and good and beneficent. We heard God said, you're not allowed to eat from a single tree of any of the fruit in this beautiful garden. Isn't God just one big thou shalt not? Isn't that terrible? I just can't believe. I just, why would God do such a thing? I mean, look at all these trees. And God said, you're not allowed to eat from any of it? It's a complete lie, isn't it? It's not only a lie, it's the exact opposite. His command was not a thou shalt not. It was a thou shalt. You may eat from any tree in the garden. Just not this one, right? But isn't it interesting? Satan puts it in the worst possible light, mixes in a little bit of lie, takes the command you're not supposed to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, sprinkles in that teensy kernel of truth and bakes the whole thing in a lie and uh, lays it before the humans. He's still doing that. I just can't believe God would do such a thing. That just, that, that sounds terrible. Well, the woman thankfully sets him straight. Uh, the, uh, but, um, verse two, and the woman said to the servant, no, we may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden. And, but God did, God said, I mean, he, he did say, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die. You hear that? You can doubt God's word. You, nah. God, he's holding back on you. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. It's interesting. Satan never actually suggest, Satan never says, eat that fruit. Some people say Satan tempted him and told him to eat the fruit. No, he didn't. He didn't tell him to eat the fruit. He planted the seed that God cannot be trusted and just watch what flowers grew from that. I think some people think they have a sin problem when in fact they have a doctrine of God problem. They don't really believe God is who he says he is. And all manner of disobedience flows from that. It's their heart. Well, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was be desired to make one wise, she took of it its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You hear that? That, that, that shame. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife did what? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? As if God didn't know. What a precious question for God to ask, that he would pursue us. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, which was music to his ears. And yet now, because of sin, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Oh, we had heaven and earth together in the Garden of Eden. And we had God walking with his people in the cool of the day. We had God and man and woman enjoying perfect fellowship with God. There it is. All things were united in God in Genesis 1 and 2. Nothing missing, nothing broken. And this serpent who who, who tempted to, to break the one command that God had given in regards to the eating It's basically a human's way of saying, I don't want to live by your rules, God. I'll call on you if I'm in trouble, but I don't want you to run my life. The Bible uses all kinds of metaphors to describe that fallen state, sin, uh, dead to sin, right? You were dead in your sins and trespasses. It uses the imagery of slavery to sin. Once you start down sin's path, you can't escape on your own. You're a slave to sin. An enemy of God. We looked at that in Colossians 1. And shame. Did you notice? Instead of running to God in our, when we get in trouble, we run from God. We're ashamed. And there's the fracture. 
And that fracture, you might say that's the stone in the pond that causes all these secondary fractures, that causes all these secondary ripples when the stone is thrown into the pond. The first being the fracture between God and humans. The second being the fracture between humans and humans, humans and other humans. Human relationships are fractured because of number one. (laughs) Human relationships are fractured because a human's relationship with God is fractured. In Genesis 3, that fracture happens pretty quickly. It doesn't take long. Before Genesis 3, the Bible says, the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Uh, The idea here, completely unashamed, nothing to hide. God calls out, Adam and Eve hid. And so back to that story in Genesis 3, verse 11, God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And what does the man say? Of course he had. But the man is in shame. And if you don't already know this about human relationships, when shame comes in, most often what immediately follows shame is blame. And here it is. God comes to the man. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you? Remember, the command came from God to Adam. I don't care what other people did. Did you do it? You knew the law. And what does Adam do? The woman, the woman, and he blames the woman and, and incredibly blames God too. The woman who you gave to be with me, I was in a deep sleep. I had nothing to do. I wake up, my rib is gone. Like I didn't, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree. And and yes, I ate. But the real headline here, Lord, is, is the woman, and you, you and the woman have a lot to talk about. I'll just stand over here in my self-righteousness. Why would somebody do that? Shame. Shame. We all know it. The reason we look at that and we go, yeah, that's right, is because we've been there. When we're called on the carpet dead to rights, it is so difficult to say, you got me. What we say is, yeah, but you got to understand I'm not the only one. Officer, they're all flying down this highway, <laughs> right? It's always, no, 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 you gotta. It. Isn't it something when we're not right with God, we're very suspicious of the motives of other people. One of the fastest ways to end cynicism is to get back right with God. But when we're not right with God, we're very suspicious of the motives of other people. Watch how that sets in. Because we've got something to hide, we just assume other people have something to hide as well. And it leads to fractures, you know? They can be big, they can be small. I remember uh, uh, years ago, I don't know why this struck me. I don't know why. Of all the illustrations, this, you may say, that is so silly. And if it is, I apologize. Maybe it is. But of all the things, I remember about a, a husband and a wife, and he was telling me he did not, he did not share his, uh, his phone's, uh, you know, passcode. He said, no way I would ever give that to my wife. I thought the two become one flesh, and you'll share the most intimate parts of who you are, but not your phone? You've just told me what's really holy in that life. And I'm, it's not surprising to tell you that that, that well... You may say, that, 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 that's such a simple thing. But to me, that illustrates what I'm talking about. Like, there's this enmity between the man and the woman. It trickles out into all different 
levels of, uh, and not just obviously man and woman, that's where it starts. The woman blames the serpent. There's, there's fractures now. Uh, I mean, we look at wars and rumors of wars among religions and races and economic classes and ethnicities. And God called Abraham to, to bless the world, to be a light to the Gentiles. Instead, Jews and Gentiles, if you look at the Old Testament, Jews and Gentiles, instead of being, the Jews being a light to the Gentiles, instead they're at war with each other. Why? Well, ultimately, that's human sin. Human sin against God has fractured. It caused a secondary fracture in our relationship to other, other people. And then third, the fracture, so fracture between God and humans, the fracture between humans and humans. And finally, and you may not think of this much, but the fracture even between humans and creation. Even creation is, is, is fractured. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, the man worked the land, and it was great joy. I mean, can you imagine being able to work with joy? For those of you that are, that are currently, right, you're, 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 you've got your employer, you're, you're there, you're working. Imagine like the best part of that work without all the, the stuff that frustrates you around it. Imagine just the joy of adding something meaningful to the world, to bless the world with something useful or beautiful without all the, the stuff around it, right? You, you say you love education, you just don't like all the politics, right? You love helping people with, the, uh, with, the, with their fixing their car or, you know, making a beautiful uh, home repair or something. You just don't like all the, 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 the bickering and the invoicing and all that that can go haywire. You, you get what I'm saying? You, 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 the actual work, though, is great joy. So the, the Bible way of saying this, it, garden, but there's thorns and thistles, see? So here it is, verse uh, 17, Genesis 3, and to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, eaten the tree of which I've commanded you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The point here is even the ground is under sin's curse. I don't know if we think a lot about that, but Paul picks this up in the New Testament. Look at Romans 8. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's be revealed to us. That's Romans 8.18. For the creation, look at that, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we eagerly await as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Uh, complicated stuff here. Simply, it's saying the ground is under a curse, and it's almost like all of nature is waiting for humans to get their act together so that they could be released from this curse. It's almost like nature's going, hey, th this wasn't our job to break that relationship with God, but because of the brokenness of the relationship between humans and God, that led to a brokenness between humans and humans, and now there is a brokenness even in nature itself. And he's, he, Paul is hinting here that, that in the new heaven, new earth, even creation, that curse will be lifted when all things are united in him. You don't hear people talk much about creation being under the curse, but some of the old poets did. Uh, John Milton, who wrote the epic Paradise Lost, he imagines when Eve bites into that fruit, here's how he describes it, earth felt the wound, and nature from her seat, sighing through all her works, gave signs of woe that all was lost. It's like earth felt it, shuddered when that 
sin happen and give some, what's the Bible say? And give some to her husband who was with her. So then Adam bites in. And, and Milton picks up on that. Look, earth trembled from her entrails as again in pangs, and nature gave a second groan. So when Adam did it, it's like nature was like, no, hit me again. Sky lowered, that just means frowned, and muttering thunder, some sad drops wept at completing of the mortal sin original. Right? He, he, Milton gets it, right? That all creation is somehow under this curse. Okay, well, <clears throat> we've covered a lot of ground there. What did I tell you the North Star was? We've got a close, <laughs> to sum up, <laughs> to bring this matter to a close, we've got to end on what this thing called hope, which is what all Christian sermons are supposed to end with. Here's the hope. The hope is Ephesians 1. Think about all that is broken between you and God, between you and other people, even between creation. What's he going to do? Unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven, things on earth. Let's do it quickly. First, how can the fracture between humans and God be united? In Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. You were enemies. Look at Colossians 1. You were enemies separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. So what did God do? Next verse. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he's brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. That is what Christ did for you. When he stretched out his arms on that old Roman cross, he took all the sin and the shame that we deserve, and he laid it on Jesus. He was broken so that your relationship could be permanently set right with God. That's God's will. He did it. Christ did it. Have you thanked him lately for that simple gospel good news that by his death, burial, and resurrection, you who were broken and enmity with God could be set right? What about humans to humans? That's humans to God. How could it be set right? In Christ. How can humans and humans be set right? You guessed it. In Christ. The answer is going to be in Christ on all these. Yeah. Christ hanging on the cross had a vertical component, God and man, but also a horizontal component, humans and humans. Christ has united all sorts of people into one church. As humans get right with God, they quite naturally, watch this, they quite naturally grow closer to each other. Humans who had otherwise would have had nothing to do with each other. Imagine someone as far from you could possibly be as a human, but as they get closer to Christ and you get closer to Christ, watch what happens. United, relationships, coming together. There's lots of ways to illustrate this. I mentioned the 100 grand pianos a couple weeks ago. You get 100 grand pianos in tune, not by trying to tune to each other and agree on everything, but by striking one tuning fork, and they all tune to that one place. No matter how far out, imagine a circle that, is, a circle that could be as big as this room, or a circle that could be as big as the state of Alabama, or a circle that could be the whole equator. It doesn't matter. Any two points on that circle, if both take a step toward the exact center of that circle, let's say the center is Jesus Christ, no matter where you are in that circle, a step toward the center is a step closer to each other, by definition. I lived in a city for 14 years that uh, uh, was, understatement, very diverse. Diverse in all sorts of opinions. Diverse in all sorts of ways. But I can get 65,000 New Yorkers to agree on something. Just put them in Yankee Stadium. And suddenly, all they care about is one thing, and they are completely unified. Why? Because now they got a mission they can get behind. And it's not about, do we agree together? It's about that. And th this is what, 
in Ephesians 1, he's saying, look, look, he's going to take Jew and Greek, and I'll, I'll save something for Ephesians 3, but if you... Uh, if you were curious uh, what Paul calls the mystery, it's Ephesians 3, 6. He reveals it. He says, the mystery I'm talking about is that Gentiles are fellow heirs. He gives it away in Genesis 3, 6. He says, I, I know, I can't believe it either. That God would take Jews and Gentiles and fulfill what's been promised throughout the whole Old Testament. Okay. God and humans, humans and humans. The church, by the way, every Sunday, every Sunday we meet, it's part of God undoing that curse. The friends, little more and more, can be unashamed around each other, sharing life without judgment or fear. It's good to be a part of. Last one, creation itself. How is it going to be restored? Say it. In Christ. Uh, the answer is always in Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Making known to us the mystery of his will as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, things on earth. I don't want to make too much of this, but the ground was cursed. Remember, uh, it would produce what? Thorns. Remember that? Isn't it something that Jesus hung naked on the cross, save one adornment? He hung there and he bled and he died with, of all things, a crown made of thorns. You can't tell me that that crown of thorns was not picking up on that undoing of the curse of Genesis 3. And just in case anyone missed the point, when Jesus rose from the dead, the empty tomb emptied out into a what? Into a garden. In fact, they mistook him for a gardener. So that crown of thorns that our Lord crucified with a crown of thorns, as if, as if even this, this fracture of creation is being restored. Again, the old poets get this. Milton, also a guy named Isaac Watts, he wrote a, he wrote a poem, he wrote a song. We always sing it at Christmas, but it's actually a second coming hymn. And we think about it as a Christmas song, but it's, it's it's fine. It's good. I, I hope we continue to sing it at Christmas. But it's really a second coming. And it's, uh, it's all about what it's like when he rules the earth. It's all about what happens when he rules the world. And he calls the song, Joy to the World. And think about it. When, when Christ comes and all things are united in him, things in heaven and things on earth, Joy to the earth, he says, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Humans get right and sing, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And he says, rocks, hills, and plains, and fields, and floods repeat back their sounding joy. Creation's like, thank you. There's a fracture set right in all these levels. And that's why that third verse, which it is, it is it, what does it say about a culture that if any secular singers sing joy to the world, they leave this verse out. Ponder that, another sermon, another day. But the verse is, no more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. How far? Far as the curse is found. No more let sins and sorrows grow. Don't let any more thorns infest the ground. Why? Because that's old curse. This is now things have been united in him. And he comes to make his blessings flow. How far will they flow? Wherever the curse is found. That's where his blessings are going to flow. See? Well, what's the point? That all things are coming together in Christ. And if God and humans can be united, then all the broken things in your life can be restored. That's it. Chuck's going to come and lead us. Time of invitation. I, I would want to make it just as crystal clear as I could. If, all, if that's where we're headed, if all things are going to be united in him, things in heaven, things on earth, then I would ask this. How's your union with God? Is it fractured this morning?
If you do not yet, if you've not yet been set right by that gospel good news that only Christ can set a man or a woman, a boy or a girl right with God, then today repent of sin and be restored to him. And if you are set right, then who are you living out this good news with in relationship? Is there a broken relationship that could be restored? If God could restore two things, the, the most distant thing in the world, in the ancient world, was not Jew and Gentile. It was any human and God. And if he could bridge that gap, then what gap could he not bridge in your relationships? Think about all the broken things in this world that you get to be an ambassador of reconciliation, telling others that God was broken for us and our salvation so that you might be forever healed. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your great will to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth. And God, if there's anybody here who's watching this today online or who's here worshiping this morning, they've come, who needs this message. God, especially for those that might be here that that they would say that that fracture is still there, that they've not been set right with God, that today would be that day where they receive your great rescue. Grant that, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.